So, Chris, season two. Season focal two. point. I genuinely wasn't convinced we'd get season one um, ever actually done, but we did off the cutting room floor and into podcasts. So that's, I'm out well pleased, but it's good to be back. It's nice to have um, an opportunity to have some more interesting conversations around some interesting focal points. Yeah, man, we've got some good guests uh, coming up in this season with some you know, really interesting insight from varied backgrounds, uh, including today's guest, mate. Yeah, so for this episode, we've got Josh Kane, who is a minister from a North London community church. Um, and weirdly, when we talked about season two, Ian and I, someone from like a religious institution came up really high on our list of people we kind of wanted to talk to. One of a number of, of people who have been like the focal point of a local community through a pandemic. They've helped people um, in dire straits. They've helped people going through difficult times. They've had difficult conversations. Um, and actually as well, a large portion of his job is about kind of mentoring people, coaching people and helping them um, to kind of improve how they perform in their daily lives and improve when the pressure's on. Um, and it actually, it seemed like a really natural fit to us. We recorded this uh, a few months ago. And if I'm honest, the day we recorded it, I was pretty flat. It was at the end of a long week. And I left this conversation feeling utterly uplifted mm. by Josh's perspective. As a result, this is a slightly longer episode than you'd normally get on the focal point. And annoyingly, I also forgot to record the final bit. So it ends relatively abruptly. But here he is, Joshua Kane with Seeds. So, uh, mate, it's great to have you on, Josh. Um, thanks for, for finding the time to, uh, to come and talk to me and Chris. We, we always start in the same way, mate. So what, what have you been doing today? What's been going on? I have been dismantling a treehouse uh, from someone's garden where they've got kids who've grown up in and now beyond treehouse age. And my kids are ready to try and break some bones jumping <laughs> off it. So um, I've just been, yeah, covered in spider's webs and leaf gunk all day. But um, oh, yeah, yes. that's what I've been doing. Uh, oh, that's amazing. Have you got any splinters? <laughs> any injuries to report? No, no, just... Uh, just man pride at you know doing diy and thinking oh yeah this will be easy and then everything always taking much longer than you think so is uh, it in the tree now in your tree oh no it's just oh. dismantled yeah <laughs> <laughs> no way am i that quick or that good yeah it's taken me ages okay yeah <laughs> that's a level of diy that is completely beyond me like without that we built a treehouse once at the rugby club i used to play in and by treehouse i mean it was a piece of like corrugated tin laid flat in some branches on a tree and that was it that, it was amazing so I think, mate you're already like five or six steps ahead i think of where i could get that so well played mate yeah so it's genuine privilege to have you on uh mm. when, when chris and i are putting the the guest list together which we, we for the focal point podcast we try and or the aspiration anyway is to try and speak to people from a number of different backgrounds because i i firmly believe that when when you look at high performance and you know, the lessons from high performance, there's an, an often a, almost a bias or a misinterpretation that they come from an elite business, military or sporting background. And we're trying to challenge that notion and think that they actually don't, they come from any environment. Uh, and when I was thinking about performance around people as well, and when mm. I, you know, when our, a mutual friend of ours introduced uh, me to you, it's like, yeah, my Josh works in probably the most high performing 
people environment you can imagine. Um, so, mate, can you can you just tell us a little bit about your role? Because obviously the listeners won't have a clue who who you are, unfortunately, because you know, sort of we're, we're speaking to random people. But can you just tell us a bit about what you you do on a day to day basis? Yeah, which is always a great question, to be honest. Um, and always tends to get a reaction, whether I'm like uh, playing football with some lads or I'm down at the hairdressers and someone goes, what do you do? Yeah. And I say, I'm a minister of a church. And I normally get two responses. Some people seem to think I must be the busiest person in the world and high performance. How would you even get the chance to speak on a high performance podcast? Yeah. And other people are just like, what do you do there is nothing to do like you just lead services one day a week and then sit around like <laughs> like i have no idea how that is is even a full-time job um which is always funny so i lead a community church in north london and we do our, our patterns of gathering are, are a little bit more informal than maybe churches other people have experienced um it's full of a lot of people who maybe wouldn't go to church otherwise, but are open to kind of spirituality and community and, and getting to know their neighbours. Um, and I've also got another job. I work for a charity called Innovista Two Days a Week, and we are focusing on um, leadership development for underreached and under-resourced places, um, particularly wanting to raise up perhaps leaders from backgrounds who wouldn't be given the opportunity to lead or train to lead otherwise, and, and trying to help them see real change in their communities, in, in underprivileged communities. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that's a bit about me. Just tell me about how you got into that line of work. What, what's the, the journey been like to get to where you are today? Yeah, so... Um, I could probably be a podcast in and of itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. So I, I didn't grow up um, going to church and my family sort of started going to church when I was in secondary school. Um, and we, we had a, a moment where I was, I was in a, a really bad road traffic accident and the church I was going to prayed for me and I survived something that just, I shouldn't have survived. Mm. Um, and we totally Put that down to, to God and, and seeing him at work. Um, so from that moment, I, I was part of the church and, and loved being part of the church community, the way that they loved and got around me, the way that they prayed and had faith, the kind of vibrancy that spirituality brings to your life. Um, and when I was a little bit older, when I was about 17, 18, so, and another church that I was involved in did a, a trip over to South Africa to work in um just north of durban um in an area that's called kuzulu natal which at the time i think was the worst hit province for aids in africa um and we went going around these townships seeing just you know a family of eight living on a mattress um an older woman in the community who'd adopted 12 aids orphans and was just leading them around um and i just I, my, my heart was profoundly changed by the need but also by by the joy and spirituality they had they had a perspective and a thankfulness and a togetherness that really influenced me and I, and I came back to England kind of mind blown I'd not particularly even been abroad at that point I'd just kind of grown up in council estates in and around Greater Manchester and hadn't had that sort of experience before and I had this profound spiritual moment where I, I prayed and I, I was very much of a sense of 
this is what I'm going to give my life to. And I really felt um, deep within my heart, I felt this this call, this urge, what, what I would define as kind of God speaking to me to say, I don't want you to go, I want you to send people. Um, which was very mysterious, and especially to hear as like a kind of 17 year old was yeah. strange. But as I've got older and I've kind of unpacked and started to step into that, it's been this sense of, yeah, I could go and I could do charity work by myself and, and, and have an impact. But actually, if I'm someone who helps other people have a greater awareness of, of their personal spirituality, but also the journey of people around them, of their neighbor and what other people are going through, that can have an even greater impact. Because I mean, now I'm leader of a community that when a pandemic hits and COVID hits, they immediately just get that we have to love our, our community, that we have to reach out to the isolated and vulnerable, that we have to drop off food and pick up medicine and the impact that we have as a community is so much greater than just, you know, one or two people who want to do good on their own. Yeah, so it was that combination of of kind of transformative experience and this profound personal spiritual moment I had that have led me to to do what I do. I speak to a lot of people and they, they tell me they're passionate. It always seems a little bit like paper thin, as in, are you really passionate about this? Or is it just your current passion? And in the last four minutes, as you've been talking, it's really clear that that is, that's a deeply ingrained passion in you. And it's really infectious, mate. When you talk, that is infectious. No, mate, the clarity you have is amazing. Absolutely amazing. I think there's, there's loads in there, I think, to pick at. The, the idea of, like, connectedness to other people, though. Mm. Like, I think you talk about that. It's not like a personal... It is a personal calling, but it's not like a exclusively personal thing. Like, if anything, it's the opposite. It's about taking something that is joyful for you and vibrant and, and connecting with other people. Um, I guess something that you mentioned the pandemic and, and the impact of, of that a little on your community. Communities have been, you know, some of them have been absolutely gutted and turned upside down by this pandemic. And the people that are right in the middle of it are people like you, you know, who, who have people that they're connected to who have people that look to them in those moments um, to help them out. And, and it, it challenges kind of, you think of the, the, the church, right? I don't think many people think of a, you know, agile, adaptable, flexible, forward-thinking organisation. And I don't take that as an, in any way to try and be offensive. I think if you ask nine out of 10 people, they, they would hold that view. Um, and we kind of had this moment of, but all, the ch all your organisation has been doing for months has been pivoting and changing and adapting and trying to respond to people's needs in different ways because they're so connected. Um, I wonder would, if you'd be willing to and happy to, right? because you'd maybe just talk a little about how you've operated as, as, a, as a church during the pandemic and what that's meant to you. Yeah, yeah, it's, everything has changed. Absolutely everything has changed. Um, and I think it's been interesting in that particularly in London where we are, there is a sense of people live kind of disembodied from the space where they are. They might live in one part of London, but they work in another part and you can live in an area for ages and not know your neighbours and yeah. um, very different from kind of my experience growing up in Manchester, to be honest. Uh, and I often say to my friends back home when I see them, you know, London is just like another country. The culture is so different. And part mm. of that culture is this kind of sense of, you're connected across social networks rather than the geography of the, of the place where you are. 
Well, that really gets exposed in a, in a pandemic because it's the people around you that you need. It's the people around you that you have to rely on and connect with. Um, and that has obviously you know, been very taxing and challenging, but has also been an opportunity for us as a church. So there's been three, three kind of main strands to what we've done. Um, the first is just pastoral care. So, you know, phone calls to people connected within our community, dropping off um, kids packs and resources and, you know, crafts for, for young kids to do at home who maybe live in, you know, tiny flats um, to just see how people are, drop off food, um, take donations and, and redistribute them. It's just been that kind of responding to the needs of, of people in front of you a, a big thing you know in my role in particular that that has shaped this past year has been how much the kind of pressure cooker of lockdown has affected relationships so um a lot of people have found their marriages really strained or fracturing in this season a lot of people have found relationships that were broken but they could just ignore when they were going out to work every day suddenly when that person is with you all the time in your space that becomes very hard to live with and, and, and very difficult. The, the toll on people's mental health, the amount of visits I've had to do to, to people who've had, you know, total mental health crises and the hospitals are already overwhelmed and, and it's so, so hard and difficult for people. So that pastoral care um, has been really important. The second bit has been um, just responding to the wider community. So we were part of a local community action group that was much bigger and wider than, than the church. Um, but one of the things we did is we hosted a phone line that got distributed to every household within our postcode and people could call up. And we had a system that was put together by some really clever local neighbors where we could link people's needs with someone who wanted to volunteer. So um, there was over 200 households that locally we helped with prescriptions and shopping, mostly um, older people or vulnerable people who were shielding, connecting them with, with young adult, you know, 20s, 30s, like us, uh, volunteers who could, you know, help and, and reach out to the people. And then the third thing was that providing that spiritual input where people could connect in person and would come and, and sing and pray and share stories together and kind of root themselves in, in the narratives of, of faith. Um, we had to move all of that online and that involved not just setting up a camera and doing what we normally do, but pivoting totally and going, right, the medium really shapes the message. We've got to speak directly into this moment. You know, it's no point just kind of doing a, an obscure sermon on some piece of theology from the 15th century. Like we've got to talk about what it means to deal with grief, loss, what it means to, to reorder your life when everything has been stopped, to, to deal with relationships, to um, find a sense of purpose and identity. Um, so we've been running online services on, on Facebook and YouTube and getting out there in social media. So it's been those kind of three elements of pastoral care, community response and, and online gathering for, for kind of spirituality and, and community. That message or that, that thing you said about the message being shaped by the medium. And, and I guess you've also described by the moment mm. is huge. And, and actually that's something that I think is, is, is the first thing I talk to that or look to that points to performance elsewhere. Like people can come into organizations and whatever they are, you have a brilliant message. We think you have a brilliant message. But if it's not right for the, you know, for the medium that you're going to deliver it, if it's not right for the moment and the context and what's going on, 
Like, it simply won't work. Like you will not get people to engage with that. Um, that's 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 huge. That's amazing work as well. I think it's, it's worth saying that. Um, you know, I'm sure you're not the only person that's been doing it, um, but it sounds like you've made an incredible difference to a lot of people or been part of something that has. Um, you know, so I, I, I tip my metaphorical cap to you because that was a stressful time, right, for everyone. Yeah. Um, and, and finding a way to cut through that and do something good, that's, that's awesome. I, I'm, I'm in admiration of you and, and the people you've done it with. Be really intrigued to know what it's like to be you know, a minister in the early 30s. Like, you know, what was that like? At my busiest, it, it's those times where I'm kind of going from crisis to crisis and helping people who are in need and responding to phone calls and those heartbreaking conversations, the most difficult points in life are sometimes the, the only times that people think of calling the minister. Um, sometimes life is the opposite and it's just full of of joy and music and food and meals and sharing and gathering people together and celebrating different cultures. And I, I have those moments of going, am I really getting paid for this? I mean, on Sunday, we're going to have a barbecue and then the blokes are going to go and play football and um, I, I won't have clocked out. You know, I, I, this is the joy I get to do with my job to kind of connect with community in that way. But yeah, it's good fun and it's always different. Every day is, is different and, and unique. I think the biggest challenge that I have um, is there can be a tendency in that to for people in my role to be just so rushed and busy all the time. And the gift and the thing that I'm trying to kind of learn and, in, and inhabit more and more is to just create loads of margin, to be interruptible, to be present, to just be stood around so that maybe the person who's a bit quieter and isn't up, as upfront with their needs is able to talk or um, just those opportunities and moments and chance encounters you have that can be the most meaningful for people. Mm. Um, there's space for them to happen and, and for them to occur. Yeah. Mate, uh, it, the, the, the variety of work you, you know, you're exposed to, or the, just the, the richness of the environment you just described is, is fascinating. And I think, I'm struck with this, the connectedness you were talking about there, you know, helping people connect. And then the work that Chris and I do, that certainly the more high performing environments, there is a really strong connection between people. Mm. Um, and I think that that echoes quite nice to what you're saying that there's a need for that. You know, people need to feel connected. Uh, we certainly see a correlation between the strength of connection and the performance in the environment that, that, that we're in. But, Personal question to you then. So you, you're going through quite a lot of variety and I suppose there's, there's natural highs and lows with that, right? How do you remain grounded? How do, how do you decompress when you're, in, when you're going through like those kinds of ups and downs that you, you just described? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, there's a story that's often told of uh, an old uh, minister who he has like a, a summer house by the beach and every summer he goes and he paints the house from like top to bottom just so that he has a sense of completion <laughs> because when you're just dealing with people and you kind of go from sometimes you go from like crisis to crisis with people there is this sense of when is the work ever done when when do you switch off um and that that is difficult because you end up carrying people in your heart and praying for people and my own personal spirituality then people kind of seep into it and I'm, you know, holding people up 
in, in my thoughts and thinking how I can help people and wanting to connect people. Um, I think there's, <clears throat> there's something that's often spoken of, of, of being reflective practitioners. So, you know, the more, the more that you do, the more activist you are, the more time you need to spend just reading and recharging and, and um, recreating. Um, I'm a big believer that in, in society, we've lost the ability to rest. What we do is we distract ourselves. We, we overstimulate ourselves by just binging on, on Netflix or on uh, whatever delights Deliveroo has to offer when you're, when you're in lockdown. But actually having just empty space for silence and processing, um, having space just to read a book in, uh, and, a, and a big, long, slow book that maybe you're not even enjoying, but it's just the discipline of forcing yourself to keep reading it is important. I think that's really, really important. And kind of the more busy and hurried my work gets, the more I find the best ways of me recharging are simpler and simpler and quieter and quieter of just finding space to be centered and still. I think that's a really astute point. And I think a lot of people do. I, I distract myself. I know that I'm really aware of the fact that when you just said it there, it's like, how often do I actually rest and how often am I distracting myself? And it's definitely heavily weighted around distraction. My, my, my follow-up question to it, mate, is how much of that is like faith-related and how much that is 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 non-like faith-related? I think that's a bit that I, I, I... My assumption would be that a lot of that is kind of... You, you, you would rely heavily on your faith to, to do that stuff. And I'm just interested whether that's an accurate assessment that I've made. <clears throat> I think it's obviously hard for me to separate because for me, all those holistic parts of, of who I am are, are integrated. The music that I enjoy, I don't necessarily, dis I, you know, I would never listen to a hymn to relax. <laughs> That would never be the way, you know, I would be more inclined to listen to some like post hardcore metal pitch and kind of run about and uh, kick some ankles and um, get really involved in that way. But I think I do see them as as still as as faith filled and, and spiritual. Um, I think silence is is an important thing. Uh, for everyone and, and I think it's important in faith and it's important for those outside of faith just to be really present to to what your thoughts and feelings and emotions what your body physically is is telling you you know we can ignore sometimes those little niggles we have um and just kind of push on and that often you know it leads to burnout and injury mm. whether mentally or physically or I, I think spiritually as well to to be alive to what your your spirit, your soul, the kind of very center of who you are is saying. Um, I think is a practice that everyone needs, whether whether you're in the church or out of it. I'm struck with something that I'd like to ask you. And I suppose it's more of a, it's a selfish question because it's something that I've wrestled with a bit in my own head, but can you define spiritualism from your perspective? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I think it's 
that deeper connection with the unseen. And I think people find aspects of it in lots of different areas. So some people find it in nature in that way that you go to the sea and it just resizes us. It, it, it gives us a proper sense of perspective, perspective of what humanity is, the kind of greatness that we're able to tame the waves and also our, in, you know, our limited, we are a part of something bigger than nature. <clears throat> people find it in, people find it in, in travel and, and culture and the kind of diversity of, of humanity, that sense that all of us together are so unique and yet we all make up this one thing that reflects, um, you know, as a Christian, that reflects something beyond us. It reflects a, a designer, a, <clears throat> a purpose, a, a pattern, an overall thing. People find it in, in story. So the way that we kind of take part in story, whether that's whether that's the story of, of nations and, or my community or I'm Northern or I'm, my family is like this, or whether that's bigger stories of, of history and, um, or, or even you know, performance, I'm gonna get my name on that trophy or be part of this team. Or we, we find purpose and meaning in story. We understand and remember through story. And I think story is a profoundly spiritual thing and a part of spirituality. And I think people find it in in art and moments of transcendence, those things that kind of speak directly to the heart, the way a piece of music without any words can make us feel sad or happy or emotional. I think spirituality is kind of elements of all of those. Does that make any sense? Was that? It, it, it does, it does. And it's, I wasn't forced to go to church as a kid, but my, you know, my mum had been, and as a result, you know, we ended up going to church and I went to, you know, I went to school with a mutual friend of, of ours, you know, and it was quite Catholic heavy. And then I went to a, a, a secondary school where religion was you know, an important part of what the school stood for. And I don't know, mate, I think joining the military doesn't, doesn't necessarily help with your spiritual journey in terms of religion, because you get exposed to stuff and you think it kind of stands in direct contradiction to, you know, what religion stands for. Chris and I have been exposed to people that have fought very ferociously for mm. their religions and done some pretty terrible things that you, in the name of religion, or, or certainly from a certain perspective, looks like it's in the name of religion. And that's probably, again, a, a, a podcast in itself, you know, I'm picking why people would do those sort of things. I've always been intrigued, like, is being a football fan, uh, um, you know, a variant of spiritualism? And, and when you look at some of the kind of the cultural markers of belonging to a group and going to a ground, you know, getting together a congregation of people all in one connected voice, you know, their energy is all focused on a particular thing and it means something to them. And I've always sort of been struck with this. I think spiritualism is tied to religion quite heavily and I don't think it needs to be. And I think how you just articulated it there is that, you know, religion can offer you spiritualism, but that actually it can be found in so many different places. Chris, I'm conscious of like, taking over and uh you know hijacking this podcast for, to be a theological discussion between myself and josh a little bit i just, I, I want i want to make sure that you're okay like you know and you're <laughs> you're back in um I, the, the, the idea of impermanence i think is is something that people that want to do high performance wrestle with um mm. because 
you know, world records are rarely permanent. Um, you know, successes in reality are rarely permanent. You know, Olympic gold medal, people that have just won medals this year, there'll be new medals in four years' time. Um, you know, people that have just maybe won a you know a huge negotiation or, or a huge um, bid process in in their work, that's impermanent. It will last a period of time and then it will go away. Um, do you see a correlation between like accepting impermanence and being able to perform better? I think the person I I think of when you share that is I think of um I think of Roy Keane, who <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure is often misunderstood and is and is a lovely man, but he talks as if you know the moment the medal was put around his neck, he couldn't wait to stuff it to the bottom of a bag, and he was like you know it's always about that hunger for the next one, mm. and that's what led him to be at to be at the top, you know, longer than arguably any other captain in, in Premier League history. And I remember in Gary Neville's autobiography, he said, when I, when I walked out with Roy Keane in the team, I felt invincible because he had that hunger. And yet, I think there's two dangers, real dangers in, in that. One is, um, did he ever really enjoy the moment? And, and is it worth reaching that peak of high performance if you don't get any satisfaction from it really and, and i think that's the thing a lot of elite athlete athletes wrestle with right and you probably have far more insight into that than me um i think the other side is i don't know if you saw he um rookie did an interview with gary neville and he was speaking about how at one point he just became obsessive i think he had he said his body fat was at like 4.2 percent or, or something crazy and he said he was he was gone he said he looked back and he was gone and he feels like actually his career ended because he became so his career was kind of split into two the, the half where in his own words i think he he drunk like a fish and ate potatoes and the half where he just ate salad and and was teetotal and you know totally went off the other way and actually he believes that cut short his career that drive to be the ultimate in in who he is and and to not get injured again to to be immaculate to be the best that he can mm. it ended up he believes curtailing you know the success that that he could have had and a soulless and joyless experience that ended up actually cutting his ability to perform short yeah i wonder I, I, something about there's something about enjoyment and joy as you've described it being useful I think that language is, is coming out. We, some of the places we work at the moment, people talk more and more about expression um, and finding a way to, I suppose, to enjoy it more and bring joy to it. But, it, but it's difficult because there are so many other things that also get you, you know, to be better at performance. Uh, I think it was, it was Sarah, Sarah Sassel, who's, who was in the first, se first season of The Focal Point, psychologist, once talking to us about, you know, People don't seem to enjoy work much anymore. Um, and actually there's a huge amount of like self kind of self-actualization and worth and, and pride and good, useful emotions to be drawn from that. But people are looking for enjoyment elsewhere. Um, you know, we don't look to work for enjoyment anymore socially. Um, that's a broad statement, but yeah, there is an issue I think where we look less and less towards work for enjoyment, which means we're arguably less good at work or we can't sustain it for as long. Yeah, yeah. a friend of mine who is, um... An, an HR guru uh, called Pat Go. He um, uh, we had this provocative conversation once where he he said, you know, we we often talk about finding work life balance, but when we spend most of our 
most of the hours in the week at work, we really need to talk about how we can make work more meaningful and fulfilling instead. Josh, what, what have you brought on? What, what is your focal point that you want to discuss with us today? What is it? So I have brought a seed, which has got a bit of a story to it. Okay. So when I came to um, our little community church in, in North London, there was a big metal shipping container outside the church that had been there for years. And neighbors used to work, walk past and say, what, what's happening? Is, is there some construction work that's gonna happen? Are you about to sell the church and shut it down? What's going on? And this big metal shipping container had been bought for uh, a boxing club that had never started. And um, over the years, it had started to just accumulate uh, junk. I asked people what was in there and no one even knew. And when we opened it, one of the main things we found was um, dozens of, of wooden blocks from some aerobics class in the 80s. Um, that someone had thought we can't throw these away you know maybe one day we will need them again and it was it was just full of, of, of junk and rubbish this container i think there's there's probably a parable in there about uh people's expectations of of church being uh being a museum or being something that kind of wants to just hold on to everything and be full of artifacts and always looking back to the past um there's probably a a metaphor in there for just the busyness of life and the the way that all of us might have kind of shipping containers of of things that we were going to start or do at some point and they've ended up instead becoming just this clutter uh, mentally emotionally a, a kind of sp spiritual or emotional baggage that we that we carry in our life from broken relationships lost opportunities things that we've just never quite made space for um so we cleared the shipping container and found that we had uh, a load of kind of empty land um, and we started this project to turn this disused space around the edge of the church into a community garden. And now we have this, this beautiful space where there's one part where there's planters and we're growing food, one part where loads of neighbors come and, and meet with each other and connect with each other as they grow flowers, a part that we've let deliberately grow wild and it's encouraging all sorts of butterflies and wildlife you wouldn't find normally one part where there's these giant sunflowers that tower over me um in this like edible garden that we're making of, of different things and it's been beautiful it's been really well used during lockdown actually it's, it's the sort of project that we started and didn't know how much it would get used but thought what a great project this would be to do and it ended up being a real center of life and community in the midst of the pandemic. It's one of the few things people could do is connect in gardens, go out and do their daily exercise in a communal space was something really rich and life-giving. But it's really taught us a lot. Um, exploring, you know, the garden, the way that things grow, the way that the way that life comes about has taught me loads and leading a, a community that explores kind of neighborliness and spirituality together in the midst of this garden has has really helped me reflect a lot more on on what I do and what I'm doing and there's there's four lessons that the seed kind of has has brought home to me that I just want to throw out there that that speak to speak to high performance in in our context the first is that um seeds need a holistic environment to grow 
they need to be rooted in something that is that is fertile and rich and that has stability they need sunlight they need things outside of them in order to grow um a lot of what we have you know needs pollinators it needs bees and insects and different things to to grow and, and i think there's that sense of for me high performance does rely on that connectedness uh, the connectedness that some people find in in sports teams but but for us the connectedness that we find with our neighbors and with community um the second thing is that um the garden is very seasonal so every year when we're in the midst of winter and all the ground is brown i, I tend to feel field questions from people who say oh, it's really sad that the gardens kind of got a bit neglected but of, of course it looks brown in the winter that's that's what plants do right um and that's taught me a lot about about patience and understanding and negotiating seasons that there are seasons of of, of joy and color of flourishing and fruitfulness there are also seasons where it's important that things strip back it's important that we fully understand the seasons of loss and change and growth and that we're we're alive to what season we're in in life a lot of people have made really big life decisions in the midst of the pandemic and some of those have been positive life decisions that you think it's a shame you didn't create the headspace to make this decision earlier because it was always the right thing to do there are other people i think who are making really rash decisions about relationships and life that are more informed by the trauma of what we've been through than the reality of the situation. The third thing that I think is really important is in the garden is we're constantly just pruning and cutting away in order to bring more life, in order to bring more growth. And I think there is a profoundness in, in simplicity that, that creates the environment for us to grow in terms of our character and in terms of, of relationships. Um, that sometimes the way the way to see more is to do less, is to, is to cut back, is to simplify, and, and I think that's really important. Um, and the and the fourth is one thing I, I just love is that the beauty of plants, whether that's um, a flowering plant or a plant that produces fruit, is that they make things that that are not for themselves. <laughs> Essentially, they produce flowers in order to pollinate across other uh, across other plants. They they pollinate to reproduce. Um, they create fruit to reproduce, and I think that's that's a truism that the most beautiful parts of our lives are not for us. Um, they're often to be to be given away, and I think for me, if I'm trying to think what high performance looks like, it looks like a life lived lived generously a life that has meaning and substance beyond just myself and my emotions and my fulfillment but something that brings worth and value um to other people gosh i think this will be the first time when we've recorded one of these that i don't think there's any questions that we've got at the end of of that in terms of asking, <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing no really really good mate it, it, normally we have to you know, coax some of the lessons out, you know, here's the item, we get it, but like, what does it mean? But I think you've very beautifully summarized the, the performance lessons that come with that. Um, what's also striking to me, and I don't know if you, you see it, Chris, like the themes that you've brought up 
pretty much echo and mirror the themes that we've seen in other environments. So we've had people come on and talk about simplicity and the need to be, you know, straightforward with stuff. We've, we've had people come on and talk about selflessness and growth and the importance of the environment. So all those components you're talking about have already come out in other discussions. And it just proves the point from our perspective that those high performance lessons are everywhere and we, we can digest them from, from any environment. Flipping it around, it's your, it's your chance to ask other question now. Um, what is your question for myself and Chris? Yeah, so I think my question follows on from some of the, the points that I was trying to explore. And I just love your insight. Um, so you've obviously worked across a number of different fields and, and thinking on high performance. And I wonder what, I wonder what your perspective is. I'm curious what your perspective is on fulfilling potential and it a bit of an easier question to answer i wonder if you could share like one barrier to fulfilling potential and one one doorway or opportunity fulfilling p potential that is that you think is, is a universal or, or holistic principle i've got i've got a doorway i think come on um that i've gone straight to so for me uh and it's a personal reflection and I've, I've seen it used well elsewhere. It's something that we talk quite a lot about. Decompressing and sharing uh, where you are. So sharing your knowledge, it ties into what you said actually about the selflessness of the garden and that, you know, it provides you know, its higher moments of providing nourishment for, our, for other people or, or, you know, providing something they're not necessarily going to benefit from. But I think that the doorway is taking time to actually take stock of where you are um, and, I think that isn't done enough, in my opinion, and can lead to problems uh, and a lack of fulfilling your potential if you're not pausing. I'm really thinking that universal is quite a big challenge, right? I, I think assumptions are a barrier that everyone will encounter in terms of like achieving high performance. I don't mean a specific assumption, I mean assumptions in general. So. I think a barrier to you doing, you know, to achieving what you could achieve in something will be assumptions by other people about what that activity or what that process means to you. Um, and likewise, I think assumption, assumptions by yourself, that I assume this is important to me, rather than really thinking about it and really engaging with it. Um, I think you know, where we see people struggling to achieve their full potential, often there's a, a limiting assumption or a barrier that's put in place by an assumption and it might be theirs it might be someone else's um, but that that can really shape how you unlock it well thanks josh in the absence of the actual recording that we made at the time um listeners we definitely did thank josh we did call him back and have a conversation um to thank him for his time and his insight um it's just not recorded um never mind however um that was a fantastic conversation it took some turns and actually took us to some quite some quite deep and meaningful places, which was um, maybe unexpected. Um, but Ian, what's what's jumped out to you from that conversation with Josh? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things that are really clear to me. I mean, I've always I've always wanted to have a conversation with a priest or a minister, you know, at, at this level where you can be quite transparent. And it didn't disappoint. The question about faith I found uh, fascinating. But the bit that really resonates with me and I think is really important, especially as we look at you know, 
the environments we live in at the moment and how compressed things have been in the last two years and lead up to Christmas, this distinction between rest and distraction. Mm. I really think there's something powerful in that and that we, we have lost the ability to rest uh, or rest has become distraction. I think there's something in that for, for us all to think about. Mm-hmm. What about you, mate? What, what stood out to you? I thought his reflections on, on, on things like nature being impermanent, yeah, having kind of impermanence and um, times of sort of change and turnover as kind of like a natural thing. I, I, that was really good. I think there is a, a tendency that we have to only want to focus on the positive. You know, in the garden context, we only want to focus on it in spring and summer when it's bright and colourful and brings us loads of joy. Um, mm. But actually that, you know, there's, there is joy to be found when things are difficult. And I think that translates into... Um, some of the other environments that we work in, um, in sporting, you know, in the sporting context, how how often do things just go well all the time? You know, in a corporate context, how well do things go all the time? Change, you kind of need it and bring it through. Um, mm. but I thought the the best tip, I guess, to take away is for you know, if you're a leader or a manager or you know, someone that's in a position where people look to you, is is that idea of make yourself interruptible, um, engineer ways, you know, where there's quiet, where there's space and opportunity for people to come and grab you and get your attention. Um, I think it's a really common phrase, you know, my door's always open. In reality, it's probably not always open. Um, and even if it is, that that kind of environment might not work for people, but finding ways to make yourself accessible and interruptible so that someone can engage you is, is brilliant. And I think that'll unlock a lot of a lot of the things that make high performance work, you know, like more open communication, dealing with elephants in the room. Um, so I thought that was fantastic, loved it. Yeah, it was a great episode. And Josh, yeah, thank you very much for your time if you're listening back to this. Well, that's it. There's there's season two started, episode one. Uh, again, we'd love to know your thoughts uh, and your questions that you may have on what Josh has said. Feel free to add those into the comments anywhere you see us talking about the podcast and we will uh, get back to you. And we will be releasing episode two of season two uh, very shortly. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us into season two. Thank you.